Well, we're starting a new series today called The Gospel According to Ruth. We're going to talk about what it means to learn to trust God in the messiness of life. And let me just say up front, I am really excited to start this series and to journey through this book with you. I'm also very intimidated because this is a book that is well-loved by so many people. But I'm also intimidated by this because we're stepping back to a story that took place 3,000 years ago. And so even though there is a love story in this book, some of the things that go on in this book just seem really bizarre to us modern people. But as we look into this book, we're going to see what it means to trust God even when things go sideways and the messiness of life and how God weaves the parts of our life together. One commentator said, the book of Ruth is one of the most delightful literary compositions of the ancient world. And indeed it is. It highlights the life of a woman named Ruth, who was a Moabite, that is a woman who lived outside of Israel, but finds herself swept up into the drama of God's redemption of the entire world. And so let me just put it bluntly. Without the story of Ruth, there would be no story of Jesus. Ruth becomes one of the ancestors of Jesus, and we'll see that later on in our study. One commentator put it like this. The book of Ruth is a literary masterpiece. It features thematic reversals as it moves from famine to fullness, barrenness to fruitfulness, isolation to community, and death to life. Indeed, this book ends on a high note. There's, there's a good bow that is put on it, and everything is wrapped up. But let's not forget that this starts out in a very dark place. Any one of these things, famine, barrenness, isolation, and death, are weighty and difficult for those who bear it. But put together, as it appears here in the very beginning of this, equals the worst of times. And so that begs the question, where is God in the worst of times? Have you ever struggled with that question? Have you gone through times in your life where you ask the Lord, where are you? What are you up to? That's part of what the book of Ruth is designed to help us understand and to trust more deeply. And so we're going to unpack those verses that Krista read for us as we, as we begin to see how this setting that is the backdrop of the rest of the book starts out very bleak. I spent so much time this week learning of just so much stuff I didn't know, even just in these first verses. And so let's begin to unpack those together. Verse 1 said, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So this book begins with just an ominous note. In the days when the judges ruled. You may be familiar with this, but if you're not, this is a time during the history of the people of Jesus in which they had been rescued from slavery in Egypt and brought into the promised land, but the monarchy of Israel had not yet been established. And so they were led by judges these people who, who God raised up to, to lead and to rescue his people. But this was really a dark, dark time in the nation. We could say that the days of the judges, or when the judges ruled, were spiritually dark and desperate times, filled with cycles of immorality, famine, oppression, societal unrest and collapse, violence, and seemingly endless wars. There were some bright spots in this time. We're going to hear about Ruth and Boaz, who are, who are shining lights. 
but they shine out all the more brightly against the dark spiritual background of the people of Israel at this time. In fact, if you were to go read the book of Judges, when the judges ruled, you would see this cycle repeated over and over again, starting at the upper right corner. God's covenant people rebel against him. And it becomes so bad that that God's patience is pressed to his limit, and his just anger is awakened. And God allows oppression by the surrounding nations. And then as they're oppressed, the covenant people of God cry out for deliverance. And so God sends judges to deliver his covenant people, and they have peace and shalom. But it's almost like they cannot handle the good times, because when the good times arrive, they go off the rails again and again. And so this is the repeating cycle in the book of Judges, and it's really almost like a downward spiral. It gets worse and worse as the book continues. And the last verse of the book of Judges says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then you turn the page to Ruth, and we're told, that in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So just imagine living at a time when people do what is right in their own eyes. Actually, we don't have to imagine that, do we? (laughs) That's a perfect description of our nation right now. Everyone does what is right in his or her own eyes. So, during this time, something else was going on. There was a famine in the land. Here the people of God are living in the promised land, a land that was described as flowing with milk and honey. But now they're not experiencing that flow of milk and honey. They're experiencing a severe famine. But what we need to understand is this is more than just kind of a random cycle of nature happening. God had told his people, and he entered into covenant with them, set them in the promised land, the very center of the nations, where they were to shine like a light to the surrounding nations to show people what what it meant to live in covenant with God. He placed them there and he told them in advance that the nature around them would be speaking to them. Listen to what it says in the, book, in, the, in the Torah. God says, If you will indeed obey the commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, And he will give you grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. When they're prospering, that was a sign that they are living in sync with God's design. But when they're not prospering, that speaks to them as well. This passage continues. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, And he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain in the land. I'm sorry, there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit. And you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. You see, my friends, famines were like prophets crying out to a desensitized people. This is what your soul is like when you rebel against God. Repent and turn back to your creator. So when we're told in this first verse that in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Nature was crying out to God's people to awaken them that they have gone off the rails again. And so we're told that a man of Bethlehem, of Judah, 
It's this place where Jesus would later be born. A man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. This seems innocent enough, but if our radars are in tune to what is going on in this story and what the author here wants us to understand, we can see that this is not a good thing at all. Let me just throw this picture of the map up on the screen. On the, uh, let's see here, on the left side, your side there, is Judah. And Bethlehem is just south of Jerusalem. And across the Dead Sea is the land of Moab, modern-day Jordan. But what I want you to see is that Bethlehem, its very name means the house of bread. And the country of Moab, when the people had left Egypt and were coming up through their country, refused to give bread or even water to the people of Israel as they were refugees. And so they are leaving the house of bread for the land of no bread. We could put it like that. And so these people are experiencing a famine in their land. And so they go from their land to a place that has a history of not being kind to the people of Israel. So here's a picture I found of uh, the Dead Sea. We're standing here at the bottom of the screen on the shores of Israel, looking across to the land of Moab. And Israel, when they would stand there and look at that, they would think about the history of that, that land, that nation, and, and they would probably be seething. <laughs> Moab had originated out of an incestuous relationship between Abraham's nephew Lot and one of Lot's daughters who got him drunk and seduced him trying to, to get pregnant. The Moabites were the result of that terrible union. The king of Moab, Balak, had hired a sorcerer named Balaam to curse Israel when they came up out of Egypt on the way to the Promised Land. And there's a verse in the book of Numbers that tells us that when that curse didn't work, the king of Moab went to another level. It says when Israel was staying in Shittim, which is a city in Moab, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to, sac to their sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before the gods. So Israel yoked themselves to Baal. Baal was a fertility god. His female counterpart, Ashtoreth, it was thought that when they engaged in their thing, then the result would be um, fertility across the land in terms of crops producing and abundance. And so this man from Bethlehem is leaving the house of bread, going to the nation of Moab that worshipped and had ensnared people in the past to engage in worship of these deities. And so we should be having this response when we read through these verse, first verses here. Something like, yikes. Leaving for Bethlehem for the land of Moab cannot be a good thing. And you know what? That's exactly what we're going to see. We're told in verse 2, that the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of, their, of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Now, let's just take a moment and, and just think about what their names mean. Sometimes me, names mean uh, very significant things. I am told that John means God is love. That does not mean that everyone who is named John believes that or experiences that or loves God, but that's what my name supposedly means. Well, the names of these characters in this story have very significant meanings as well. Elimelech means, my God is king, which is very interesting. Here is a man named my God is king, living among a people who are rebelling against the Lord, their God, who is king. 
They're experiencing famine, and they're doing what's right in their own eyes. So Elimelech is not staying true to his name. He's doing what is right in his own eyes. He himself is, is king of his life. He's taking matters into his own hands. Naomi, her name means sweet or pleasant. I like to think of maybe Elimelech calling her sweetness or something like that. Milan means sickly. Kilion means frail. One commentator translated it as, as critically ill and terminally ill. <laughs> How would you like to have those names? I don't know why they were named that. Probably because they didn't thrive in pregnancy, maybe due to the famine. But for whatever reason, these are the name of the characters. My God is king, sweetness, sickly, and frail. That's how this book starts up. And we're told that they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. What if we were to pause and ask ourselves this question? What if they had remained in Bethlehem, repented of doing what was right in their own eyes, and called their neighbors to do the same? Maybe a revival would have been ignited. Maybe they wouldn't have had to go into the land of Moab. What if they had remained in Bethlehem instead of going to Moab and remaining there? Well, we never know. Verse 3 starts out with the word but. Setting us up for more bad news. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. We're not told how long after they remained there that he died, but he died. And I want to invite you to put yourself in Naomi's place for just a moment. Imagine you're in a foreign country. You're trying to make ends meet. Your husband, who is literally the breadwinner, the one who, who looks after you and keeps you safe, seeking to provide for you, now is dead. And she's left with her two sons. Thank God she's left with her two sons. In that day and age, women couldn't just go out to the local university or to a, a local healthcare facility or a local restaurant and get a job. That just wasn't what happened in those days. It was an agrarian society, and you worked with your family to make ends meet. And so here she finds herself. In the worst of times, her, her husband has died. They've left their country where there's famine, and her life is falling apart. There's a commentator by the name of Carolyn Custis James who wrote a very good um, reflection on the book of Ruth. And, and in this part of Ruth, she said, Naomi's boys were the future, family's future and their mother's glory. In a culture that measured a woman's value by the number of sons she produced, Naomi was a woman worthy of honor for giving birth to Milan and Kilion. Her accomplishments in childbirth meant that the Elimelech family line was a sturdy double strand. Even the woes of widowhood were blunted somewhat for Naomi by the fact that she had a double insurance coverage for the future, two sons to carry on her husband's name and to care for her in her old age. She finds herself now with her husband having passed away, but she has her two sons. And we're told in verse 4, these took Moabite wives. The, names, the name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth. Whenever I read this, my eyes keep seeing Oprah there, but it's not Oprah, it's Orpah. And the other was Ruth. I wonder what Naomi thought at this moment. 
of their desperation when her sons are taking Moabite wives. I wonder if something in her mind reminded her that this is not supposed to happen. Israel was was to be a set-apart nation, and they were forbidden from intermarrying with foreign wives because that always came with the baggage of worshiping foreign gods. Think about King Solomon and the wives that he accumulated, and we're told that those wives of the foreign nations led his heart astray. But nevertheless, Naomi's sons take wives. And it's probably not too hard to imagine that these women were not the cream of the crop. This is a family that's destitute. They have nothing to offer that would make this an attractive thing. Likely, Orpah and Ruth came from very poor families as well. And so here's Naomi in a foreign land with a dead husband and her sons trying to put their lives together and marrying women. And we're told that they lived there for about 10 years. I don't know if you noticed this when we read through the text earlier, but in verse 1, we're told that they went there to sojourn, which carries the idea of just just being there for a little bit. In verse 4, we're told that that they remained there. And now, one year turned to two years, and two years turned to five years, and five years turned to ten years. But it gets worse. They lived there about ten years, And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This woman went from bad to worse. Now without her husband, now without her two sons, she has no hope. She will be destitute the rest of her life, dependent on the mercies of foreigners, who did not look upon Israelites with great fondness to care, to give, to help her survive. Is Naomi the female version of Job? Have you ever stopped to think about this character who is known for suffering by the name of Job? If you don't know that story, it opens up with... with Job being a righteous man, loving the Lord, loving his family. And a a series of back-to-back-to-back tragedies happen in which he loses his possessions. His servants are attacked, and his, his kids who are celebrating in a home suffer a tragedy when that home collapses in upon them. And this book just goes on and on and on as Job tries to figure out what in the world is God doing It does seem like Naomi is a female Job, except Job is a man in a patriarchal culture, and so he has connections, and he has ways to survive, but Naomi doesn't. Carolyn Custis James said this, I never connected emotionally with Naomi's losses until I heard her compared to the legendary sufferer Job. That got my attention. Until then, her sufferings seemed to serve as props, to set up the real drama, the love story between Ruth and Boaz. In my eagerness to get to the part where Boaz enters the narrative, I stepped over a shattered Naomi, and in the process, missed the real power of of the story, a story of a woman's struggle with God. Glossing over Naomi's agonies comes at a high price, for by minimizing Naomi's pain, we inadvertently minimize our own. 
we owe it to Naomi and to ourselves to stop and contemplate the collapsing towers in Naomi's life, to sit with her for a while at ground zero, for without a better grasp of her sufferings, we will miss the impact of her doubts and the real power of the gospel of Ruth. So let's sit with Naomi for just a moment in her ashes. Here is a woman who had everything going for her. She was, she was of the people of Israel. She had a husband and she had children. Things looked well. And then society began to collapse around her. Her, her people began to rebel against God. Dark times were on the horizon. Wars were all around her. Famine was nipping at their heels. And so she and her husband, instead of doing what they should have done, which is to remain in the land of Israel and to repent and cry out to the Lord for mercy, to turn back to the Lord, took things into their own hands. They did what was right in their own eyes. And they went off to this foreign land where they thought would be their salvation. But instead, it went from bad to worse to unthinkable. And so here she is. Like that prodigal son that Jesus spoke about, who left his father's house and went into a foreign land and there found himself destitute. Here Naomi finds herself destitute, without God, without hope, without a family. What was that like for her? Dean Ulrich, in his commentary on this book, said, Maybe you feel pounded by pain, or perhaps worse, numbed by pain, either physical or emotional. You may wonder what went wrong, and where is God? It is not unusual for God's people to have dark nights of the soul, or even dark months and years of the soul. Nowhere does Scripture promise instant relief, much less immunity from trouble and sorrow. We live in a world that labors under a curse, and the vestiges of the sinful nature still plague us. Humans are born for trouble. Here at the beginning of Ruth is trouble times ten. And so Ruth, I'm sorry, Naomi had to have been asking the question, where is God in the worst of times? Where is he? Does he, does he even care? Does he even Notice me. I can't help but wonder if she, she began to reflect on the things that she had been taught about God and how he rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and gave them a brighter future. I wonder if she, if she cried out, like we saw last week in Psalm 88, a psalm of lament, cried out to the God who saves her. Maybe. And the reason I say that is because in verse 6, we're told that she rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. I highlighted that word, return, because it is used six or eight times in chapter 1 altogether. It is a theme in this book, to turn, to, to return. And so she returns from the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Underline that phrase there, the Lord had visited his people. This is the scripture's way of talking about how God has come to his people in revival. 
And so there's revival breaking out in Israel. People are turning back to the God who rescued them, who liberated them, who has now awakened them from their slumbers through all the difficulties they've gone through. And she has heard the Lord has visited his people. And maybe she begins to hope against hope that he might have mercy on her. And so she got up and left because she heard the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. That word for food in my English translation in Hebrew is literally bread. There is bread once again in the house of bread in Bethlehem. So she goes home. So my friends, at this moment, I want us just to pause and to think about a word that the Christians who've gone before us used to use all the time. And it's a word that, that I hardly hear anymore in my own conversations with people or even with others speaking to me. And that is the word providence. Have you heard of this word? Providence is a word that is very important, and we need to recover it. The scripture teaches that God not only created the world, but he also rules this world in such a way that everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, fits into the real life story of the salvation of this world in Jesus Christ. The scripture doesn't tell us that God just created the world and stepped back and let it go on its own, but that God is very involved, ruling and overruling, working and weaving everything that goes on into this grand story of redemption centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I remember last week in our message together, I referenced the Westminster Assembly, which was called together by the English Parliament in 1643, basically to revise the Church of England, to reform it, to uh, basically do some house cleaning to look at what they believed and to make any corrections about that. So they called together um, just a bunch of some of the smartest pastors and theologians and even members of parliament to work together. And they spent years. They, instead of you know, rewriting the 39 Articles of England, they basically came up with an entirely new confession of faith or, or a statement of what the church should believe. And in one place, it says this. God who created everything also upholds everything. He directs, regulates, and governs every creature, action, and thing, from the greatest to the least, by his completely wise and holy providence. He does so in accordance with his infallible foreknowledge and the voluntary, unchangeable purpose of his own will, all to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. You see what that is saying? They're saying God rules and overrules everything. There is nothing outside of his control from the greatest to the least. And the scriptures even put it like this in the book of Proverbs. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Nothing is random and outside of God's control. I love the way R.C. Sproul put it one time. If there is even one maverick molecule running loose in God's universe, God is not sovereign. And so how do we, we reconcile that <laughs> with a world that looks like it's out of control? How do, if you, how do you, if you're standing on those shores with Naomi, as she looked across the Dead Sea to her home in Israel, how would you explain that God is somehow mysteriously at work in all of this? There's this story in the book of Genesis that you may know, the story of 
Joseph and his brothers sold him into slavery. And he ended up in Egypt and through twists and turns and God's expressing favor upon him and giving him favor in the eyes of people, he rose to second in command in, is- in Egypt. And there was a famine in the land of Israel and his family ended up migrating down to Egypt to, to look for food. Long story short, he was reunited with his brothers and they were freaking out because they actually sold him into slavery. <laughs> and they're like, if, he's, if he is holding a grudge, we're in... We're in bad trouble. But Joseph said to his brothers, you intended to harm me. He doesn't doesn't gloss over it. He says, you intended to harm me, but God. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, Joseph understood the providence of God. He understood that even when bad things happen and people make bad decisions, God hasn't lost control. He's actually working in those very situations for different purposes than those people were who were intending bad. You see, Joseph's brothers were working in this situation for harm. But God was working in this situation, allowing it to happen to end up for his own purposes. So think about the providence of God in the life of Ruth the Moabite, the the widow of Malon. She's going to take center stage in this story beginning next week. So we continue our study in this. But, but think about the providence of God in her life. Here she was, hanging out in her country of Moab, worshiping the gods of her people. And it just so happened to be that this random family from the nation of Israel shows up in her country. And it just so happens to be that she ends up marrying one of her sons, their sons. And it just so happens to be that she gets swept up in this story about Israel. And it just so happens to be, unbeknownst to her, that she's going to end up being one of the ancestors of Jesus. Did you know this? When we get to the New Testament, we open up the book of Matthew. Matthew begins with this genealogy of Jesus, and I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to summarize part of it here. But it begins with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And then it drops down. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Wait a minute. Boaz became the father of Obed by Ruth. We're going to read that story as we continue the study here. But don't, don't miss this. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Wow. So Naomi becomes the grandmother of the great king of Israel, David. Remember, she lived in a time when the judges ruled. There was no king. And God brings her by his providence into the nation of Israel, works through all the bad decisions and the terrible things that happened to bring this Moabite woman to faith in himself and into the lineage of Jesus. David Strain said this, There is a divine plan above and beyond the misguided plan of Elimelech hatched in Bethlehem. God has been at work in sending the family to Moab, governing even their sin for his holy ends, incorporating Ruth and Orpah into this Hebrew household, all of it carefully setting the stage for the drama to follow. Without Elimelech's fateful decision to flee the famine, without Malon and Kilian taking Moab out wives, without the death of all three men in the home, 
Ruth would never have become the ancestor of Jesus Christ. The family line of the Messiah would never have been established. There would be no gospel, no salvation for the nations, no remedy for sin, no answer for those who have been subtly ensnared by sin themselves. If Elimelech hadn't taken a wrong turn and gone to Moab, and Ruth hadn't married into the family. Strain goes on and he quotes this verse that so many of us know and we love by, we know by heart and we love and it means so much to us. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And what a beautiful verse that is. But he asks this question. He says, what a precious text it is. But just how far has its truth penetrated your heart? Does God work all things together? All things? Elimelech's sin? The tragic deaths of the head of the household and his two sons? The destitution of Naomi and her pagan daughter-in-laws? Does God work the darkest, sorest, ugliest, most shameful, most painful trials together for good? That's the hard and hopeful message of Romans 8.28 and Ruth 1 through 5. However low into the shadows of loss you may sink and have your heart pierced through with sorrow and inexplicable suffering, even this God works for good. Even this in ways beyond our comprehension, leading ultimately, even if not immediately, to our eternal welfare. So my friends, at its core, the book of Ruth teaches us that even the worst of times are not wasted in the lives of God's people, but are redeemed by the sovereignty of God and skillfully woven into his tapestry of grace. Do you believe that? That's one of the lessons that the book of Ruth is going to press upon us over and over again. John Piper, in his commentary on this, said, One of the main messages of this little book is that God is at work in the worst of times. He is at work doing a thousand things that no one can see but him. Do you think about that when you're going through tough times? That God might just be up to a lot of things that you have no idea about, that you cannot see right now. Think about our Lord Jesus Christ. Here was the righteous of the righteous men who ever lived. In fact, when he asked his opponents, which of you can accuse me of sin? They were crickets. And yet, through the providence of God, he was caught up in this conspiracy, the religious leaders and the Roman authorities who put Jesus to death. And if you had followed Jesus for three years, if you had gone all in thinking this was the Messiah, the chosen one, the one you had been waiting for, and all of a sudden you saw him nailed to the cross, you would have thought that God had fallen off his throne, that he was not in control, that there's no possible way that any good could come from this. But that was Friday. And as they say, Sunday was coming. And when Sunday came, that stone was rolled away. Jesus rose again from the dead. And so out of arguably the greatest evil that has ever happened to a man, God has brought about the greatest good, which is the salvation of this world. And so my friends, we cannot always judge what God is up to in any given moment. Naomi couldn't. David couldn't. I can't. 
and you can't. Sometimes, in retrospect, we get perspective. And we, can, we can see, oh, this is what God was doing. But sometimes there are big questions that might wait till we get to heaven, and God shows us how it all fit together. Have you heard that phrase, God moves in a mysterious way? It was made famous. I don't know if it was originated by William Cooper, but it was made famous by him in a poem that he wrote. And Cooper himself was a man who just lived a dark night of the soul. He battled deep, dark depression. He lived in despair, thinking that God had written him off. But in one of his moments of clarity, he, he penned this beautiful poem. It goes like this. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Part of the beauty and the power of this poem that Cooper absolutely nails here is that God does move in mysterious ways, and we can't always figure it out. But God himself one day will make it plain. We are poor interpreters of what God might be doing at any given moment or any given season of our life. But God is weaving it all together. And as it says here in the end, God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. We will know someday, my friends, how it all fit together. So in the meantime, we have to trust him. In just a few moments, we're going to sing this song, Cornerstone, together. When darkness seems to hide his face, his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. Within the dark and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. My friends, that last line is a statement of trust. It is a statement of faith. It is a statement that we sing together in the good times and the bad times, and even the ugly times. The trust that he is Lord, and he is Lord of all, is a statement of trust that God is going to work it out all together. Even this moment that I'm in, in this storm. So Mercy Hill, may you trust in the kind heart of your Heavenly Father, who masterfully works all things, the good, the bad, and ugly things, together for your good and his glory.